can't get enough eye-popping, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one-month free trial now. You watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, slap bad, it's the slash film cast. For the girls, slap poor, slap old, slap young, and we watch till the last of the credits is done. We watch the movies, flicks, slap tracks for the good, slap bad, it's the slash film cast. For all the news and the movies coming out, cause you know that it's the thing worth talking about. Hello and welcome to the Slash Film Cast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm Devinder Hardwar, and tonight I'm joined with... Jeff Kanata. Hey Jeff. We're also going to be joined by Vanessa Arazzo, the film editor at Remescola, later uh, for a review of Coco. But for now, let's just talk about what we've been watching. So I've seen... I've pretty much been on a binge, just because there's so much to see. This is prime award season. Uh, so I saw Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's Ugh. new film. Uh, almost, it feels like it's sort of based on her experiences too, of you know a young girl coming coming of age in Sacramento, uh, with the desire to like move to New York, move to the East Coast, but also trying to deal with her life in a very quiet, uh, quaint town. I think she calls it the uh, the Midwest of California. Uh, this movie is very good. That's pretty much all I have to say. Go see it right now. Yeah, I'm um, dying to see this. I, I, everybody has been telling me you have to go see it, and it just hasn't yeah. hasn't happened yet for me. But I am I am very much excited to see go, Lady Jeff, Bird. Take your wife too. Like it's yeah, it, it's a fantastic film, uh, and it stars Saoirse Ronan, who is just like she is a treasure. You know, everything she does yeah. is just phenomenal, and it's also amazing that we've been tracking her career since Atonement. Right, and then Hannah, mm-hmm. and like such like wildly different movies, and now she's just playing an American teen girl. That's it with a uh, kind of spunky <laughs> one. Yeah, this movie, you know, it's really about her character coming to terms with living in this town where she just feels completely restricted, uh, and her desire to move out and do something better. Um, you know, to, to somewhere where there's more culture, as she says, but also. This is a really interesting relationship movie because it's also really about her relationship uh, with her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf, and who is another genius. I think genius, just fantastic. Um, and what's interesting there too is like they have such a loving relationship, but the mother character is also like really judgy in a way that feels authentic to the way parents can be sometimes to kids, especially when they've grown up very differently than their kids may have. And I love that this movie just really focuses on this relationship really well. I think uh, Greta Gerwig described it as, uh, like, she wanted to make a movie where this is sort of like the romantic relationship, you know, in a typical movie. Like, the ebbs and flows of that relationship. That's how they're handling this mother-daughter bond here. And it's just so, it's just so interesting, too, because Lady Bird, you know, she's loud and she's brash and you want to love her. But she also does, like, really terrible things. And she says bad things, you know, to people um the mother is loving and has a huge heart but she says things to ladybird that are, you know don't really support her daughter and 
that that dynamic between them, the way they can go from being in a fight to immediately doing something that bonds them together, uh, I found really fascinating. So worth checking out. Great cast all around. Um, who else? Uh, Tracy Letts is in this movie uh, playing Lady Bird's father. Just also love seeing him too. Just like a great subdued role here for him. Check it out if you can. Uh, this is definitely a movie that's yeah worth watching in the theater, I think. Awesome. Yeah. Dying to see it. I also saw Darkest Hour, the new film from Joe Wright. Uh, oh, wow. Covering from Pam, basically. Remember Pam? <laughs> Unfortunately, I do. Yeah. Uh, so I love Joe Wright. I love everything he's done. Uh, you already mentioned uh, Atonement and Hannah, two things he's done with Saoirse Ronan. Um, he has a great visual style, and he, especially when like his cinematic sensibility is tied together with like historical stories, uh, it tends to work really well. And this is a movie about uh, the early weeks uh, when Winston Churchill becomes prime minister, and him trying to deal with uh, you know the Nazis uh, invading France, and what are you know what is Britain going to do about it? How are they going to fight back? In a way, it's sort of like a counterparts uh it, it tells like the background story of what was happening behind the scenes during dunkirk basically hmm. it's kind of fascinating that we have both of those movies uh both of these movies this year and honestly both that uh i think evoke the same sense of like you know standing up and fighting against this sort of evil no matter what it takes uh it's kind of schmaltzy in a way like a <laughs> I don't want to spoil too much, but there's a scene towards the end that feels like pure schmaltz. It feels like Spielberging it up. It feels like Spielberg at the end of Saving Private Ryan or something. But it really worked for me. And honestly, it also came a day after the New York Times uh, published that profile about the the freaking Nazi. So yeah. it was it was great to see a scene like that where people stand up and be like, you know, no, we don't. We're gonna fight this. We're gonna fight the Nazis. We're gonna fight them everywhere. Um, really worked for me. Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill. This is a uh, this is a great Gary Oldman performance. It's uh, it's loud, it's brash, but it's also quiet at times, and that's what I really liked about his performance in uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. That movie is so subdued and it's all internal, and this movie is kind of all over the place. There's a bit of that, but also you know he's wearing a lot of makeup and prosthetics to be playing a much bigger role. Uh, but he's, I've heard the prosthetics are incredible. It's in this. amazing. Like I I never felt pulled out. Like, I, I never felt like I was watching somebody be, uh, pretend to be Winston Churchill. Uh, the prosthetics are great. Like, much better than, like, what we saw in um, Prometheus, right? Like, the stuff we saw to Age. Um, uh, who was that? There there was old Age makeup in Prometheus that was really bad. and just Yeah, like, that was, um, what's his name from Memento, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Guy Pierce. Who was that? Guy, Guy Pierce. yeah, right. So it's like that was really distracting and weird, especially for such a you know expensive movie. Whereas this one, it feels really legit, and Gary Oldman really inhabits this role. Um, ben Mendelsohn plays King George, which is really interesting casting too, because he's Australian, right? Like you don't typically see uh, yeah. the outer colonies playing royalty. So <laughs> that, that was kind of fascinating too. Um, great, just great film. If you want to feel good about <laughs> people rising up to fight fascism. Uh, and a country come together. If you just want some of that schmaltiness, which I think we kind of need in 2017, uh, check this movie out. It's also beautiful in a way that every Joy Wright movie is. And even if it's just people talking. Like uh, the opening scene is in Parliament, and the camera does some amazing things 
that you know has never made a i feel like a parliamentary debate has never seemed more thrilling than with joe right behind the camera <laughs> so also check this out if you can and so that's it, the darkest hour that's darkest hour yeah and i've also been watching the she's gotta have it uh reboot on netflix and this is spike lee's reboot of his own movie uh pretty much his first movie right and yeah. You know, it tells the story of a young artistic uh, woman in Brooklyn who has she's juggling three levelers, uh, sometimes more, and she's completely unapologetic about it. And she's just like fierce and trying to like live life by her own rules. Uh, Nola Darling is her name. Um, I liked the original movie. Uh, that movie also had some issues. I think uh, Spike Lee has been dealing with for a long time. In particular, there's a you know there's a rape scene in that movie that didn't work then and certainly as we've like come to understand feminism a little more and like you know the culture has moved on a bit it looks really bad today and i think this this show goes in and kind of reconstructs some of that um and i think for the better but what's really interesting too is that it's uh it's just like a great well-written show dealing with issues that people in brooklyn are dealing with today it's dealing about gentrification uh how fort green in Brooklyn is changing. Uh, the opening credits, uh, they overlay scenes, um, like photos from filming the original movie in the 80s to today. Mm. And it's just like, what a vast difference, like how much Brooklyn has changed. Uh, the show itself is just really entertaining. The characters are great. The writing is great. Um, I basically can't stop watching it. If I had the time, I'd just sit down and binge the whole thing. And, uh, you know, that's uh, surprising because uh, Spike Lee's recent movies... Uh, I did not want to do that. I wanted a lot of them to end much sooner uh, than they did. Like I'm thinking of like uh, uh, Chirac wasn't wasn't very good. It was it was all right. Yeah. Uh, the sweet blood of Jesus yeah. is kind of terrible. And old boy, his old boy remake. Oh man, uh, this show will make you remember how great Spike Lee can be. Every scene is just framed so meticulously. The characters are so well-realized. He has a lot of writing help, too, which I think is a good thing. It's not just him putting his ideas out there. And, uh, yeah, overall, it just seems like a much more uh, smarter and more consistent version of the ideas we saw in the original movie. So definitely worth checking out. Looks amazing. Great soundtrack, too. The show does this thing where pretty much every scene has a really good song behind it just like backgrounding the whole thing and before you cut to the next scene just for like a split second he shows the cover art for the album so it's like you would think mm. that would take you out of it immediately but uh i don't know it kind of works it's a nice stylistic touch i've never seen that before but it gives the series its own little vibe to really dig that it's so interesting to have a filmmaker reboot himself yeah, in a yeah. format I mean, I guess we've seen that before. Nothing really comes to mind specifically, but um, I, I, I would imagine we've we've seen that before. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's fairly rare, and it's an interesting thing for a a creator to revisit something that's as old as this <laughs> material is, and put some fresh eyes onto it, put some fresh blood into it. You know, it just seems interesting. Yeah. This is like the Mad Max Fury Road of Spike Lee. Yeah, basically. I guess. Right, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, worth watching. Uh, watch it immediately. And, uh, you know, that'll bring us to the Slash Film Court. We haven't had one of these in a while, but we got a good uh, entry from Danish Syed from Chicago. 
You can always yeah. send us uh, send us your cinematic queries at slashfilmcast at gmail dot com, and uh, we'll our do, do we'll do our best to judge them. But Jeff, can you read uh, what he sent us? Indeed, I can, uh, and we will adjudicate uh, uh, thusly. Uh, Danish writes like many others. I have experienced the gamut of slash film court worthy film etiquette transgressions, talking, texting, seat kicking, crying children, etc. In each of these cases, though there may be finer points of discussion, there's usually a person at fault and a clear, albeit potentially awkward, solution. But I bring forth to you an impossible case where a movie can be absolutely ruined by an unwitting patron who is doing nothing wrong, yet is ruining others' experiences simply by enjoying the movie. I submit the dilemma of the bad laugher. Last week at a showing of Thor Ragnarok, from the very first joke, not one minute into the movie, I heard a loud, shrill, ear-piercing howl not three feet behind me. It echoed off the walls. It reverberated through my skull. It, I felt it behind my eyes. What was happening? Did somebody hurt themselves? Was somebody murdered? Was it laughter? <laughs> Unfortunately, it became quickly apparent that it indeed was some form of banshee cackle. And unfortunately for everybody in our audience and possibly a few neighboring screens, Thor Ragnarok is a very funny movie. There's big laughs, small laughs, subtle jokes meant for a quick chuckle. Every joke, no matter the scale, would elicit a piercing eruption. God bless her soul. She wasn't yelling back at the screen. She wasn't talking to her friends or eating smelly foods or crinkling wrappers. She was quiet and courteous but just laughed like a stuck Nazgul. How can anybody begrudge somebody for simply enjoying a movie? She did nothing wrong. Her only crime was being herself. So I sat there and I did nothing and I tried to enjoy the movie and mostly did. But what would you have done? What can be done? That's oh, Danish man. from Chicago. Uh, I love this one. I love this one. And, you know, we're we're running low on Slash Film Court. So if you want to have your movie-related dilemma adjudicated by us who have been duly appointed by the state to come down uh, with uh, firm uh, sentences either way, please send them to uh, slashfilmcast at gmail.com. So what do you think? Yeah. I'm just uh, What do you about think this. about this? One? <laughs> I, I've had similar experiences. And – it's tough because so I was watching uh, Goodfellas at the Brooklyn Academy of Music I think last year or a couple of years ago. Um, no, no, it was Heat. It was Heat. It wasn't even Goodfellas. Oh, the, it wasn't even a movie. The comic. The comic. comic uh, yeah. The, yeah. The, there was the comic one guy sitting next to me who, whenever Al Pacino said anything, this guy next to me would just like, yeah, erupt in this like crazy. Are you sure laughter. it wasn't Al Pacino? <laughs> I th- I don't know. I think he was trying to do a Pacino to Pacino <laughs> on screen. Um, and that's a really flamboyant role, too, for Pacino at times, right? Uh, I, I think later on he still said that he basically played it as if that guy, as if his cop was high on coke most of the time, right? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, there there's so many great lines, but, yeah, the, the, the uh, she has a great ass or something I, like yeah. that. Uh, this guy would just not shut up whenever Pacino said anything. He was too far away for me to shush, 
but he was mm-hmm. definitely close enough to be loud and just really obnoxious, certainly louder than anybody else in the audience. Uh, all I could do is really bear with it. Um, it would certainly be different if they were near me uh, and much more painful for like a genuine comedy or something more funny like Thor Ragnarok, right? Yes. Uh, I I have a different take on this. I feel like I may have in a few situations been this <laughs> person i mean i i wouldn't consider my laugh I mean, you guys have heard my laugh I, I wouldn't consider my laugh uh shrill uh per se but i definitely have a uh let's what, what what would we say boisterous laugh a uh a uh an an uh un uh <laughs> unrestrained laugh perhaps uh and i i like uh i like laughing and i like reacting to movies so i I would guess that there's been situations where I have been annoying to people because I find something funny. There's been, I will say this, there's been many movies where something will happen and I will laugh and will be the only person in the theater (laughs) that found that particular thing funny. Yeah. um, Which I'm sure probably is annoying to people. But so I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for this woman. And Danish is right. She's not really doing anything wrong she went there to have a good time she's having a good time like that's yeah that's her job at but the movie her, theaters to her, enjoy it if her good time interrupts other people's good time right i feel like there's a nexus of like behavior and how much of your enjoyment can disrupt somebody else's like i i'd have to hear this laugh i'd have to really see it in context to really uh, get a sense we have to like recreate this in vr to really know <laughs> what the situation was like. Yeah. In the future, can all of our uh, emailers submit a fully rendered v- VR scene? Or a minority uh, actually, report, no- like Memory Ball or something? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, knowing Danish, I bet he actually could do that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But even so, like, if that's your God-given laugh, if that's the laugh you were born with, right? What yeah. What are you supposed to do? It's It's tough. I do think, like... So I have a memory from like seeing a clown show or something when I was a kid. And I remember it's, I was like five or six or something. And I remember I was just like really laughing, really enjoying it. And somebody told me to like, you know, just just be a little quieter or something. It was an adult. Uh, Right. And I think that kind of stuck with me in a way. That's horrible. Throughout life. Right. It's it's like a kid. Let, Let kids be kids. I don't know if this is necessarily the same though. Like as an adult, you can have a better sense of how your behavior affects other people. Um, I think what, you know, Danish did is ultimately like what I would have done. It's just like, you know, try to enjoy the movie. I mean, when I went to see Darkest Hour, I saw it at uh, the AMC, not the AMC, the Regal Union Square in New York. And, uh, there were, there were old people that were like coughing as if they had like, you know, that they were about to croak like in the theater. Like it, it was yeah. pretty bad because this is winter in New York. Uh, there are people snoring and sleeping through it. Like it, that is a pretty much stereotypical you know, a way to get a bad experience in the New York theater, but right. it was fine. I still enjoyed the movie, and even though that was a quiet movie, it just what can you do? You can't always control your environment. In this situation, I'm not sure what uh, what he could have done. Like maybe if it was really bad, maybe lean back and just be like, eh. I, I don't know. You can't really say anything, but sometimes when you look at people, give them that look of like, eh, can you like settle down a little? Uh, Here's what I was yeah. saying. Here's what I was saying. I think there is a discernible difference between the people that are sort of putting on a laugh or laughing ironically right, or yeah, laughing yeah. laughing so they'll be the center of attention or to 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 I think you can sense that and it, which it doesn't sound like was the case here it sounds like this lady was legitimately into the movie and having a great old time and i say 
my verdict is you if you can't beat them join them uh-huh. you you just <laughs> get into it like i i would i would guess that the filmmakers of Thor Ragnarok were they to wander into this screening would be delighted to hear this lady having such a good time even if her laugh was shrill i would i would assume that they would be super happy and i say hey if you you know sort of relax and laugh alongside her and get into it and have a great old time yourself mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's pretty, my pretty that's my advice, advice. I, I do think like there are situations where i don't know ch- ch- just check check what you're doing how it affects everybody else but maybe that's just me maybe that's just like my own anxieties because i don't like bothering people that's just me uh, but at yeah. the same time i do want to feel free to like uh, feel emotionally connected to a movie and respond to it that's why I'm not a big fan of like some of these super super quiet rules that we have at theaters like the Alamo Draft House, where it does feel like if I laugh too hard or if I react too strongly to a movie, um, I, I could be kicked out. They have all those scary right. warnings and stuff. So yeah, that is the sort of thing I try to balance. Um, there yeah. is a part part of the movie going experience is sitting in a room with a bunch of people, and there is there is a joy to laughing alongside an audience. There's a joy to being scared with an audience. There's a, you know, there's a joy to that communal shared emotional feeling. I mean, we, you know, we're, we'll talk <laughs> in our review of, of, uh, of Coco about, I, I'm sure about, uh, getting emotional, you know, in movies with alongside strangers. I think that's part of the experience. Mm-hmm. It's, it's when it's disproportionate that I understand that can feel weird, but I say, you know, Jump in, have fun, be disproportionate alongside with that person, and, and you know, have fun. I, I like that, and I also have to say, like I, I'm in a lot of critic screenings too sometimes, and you know, art house movie screenings where I feel like the audience just doesn't react, right? They have they have yeah. a sense of just like uh, they're too cool to maybe laugh at these jokes or something. Right, um, and I I'm not a fan of that. Uh, I, when I saw um, what, a killing of a sacred deer. That movie is a dark, dark, black, dark, pitch hole black comedy. Um, there are really, you know, screwed up things that happen in that movie, but it's also meant to be funny at certain points. And I had no problem laughing when nobody else in the art house theater was laughing. At <laughs> things. And right. that's, uh, yeah, maybe I disrupted something for somebody, but at the same time, like that, that's the movie. That's what the movie is trying to convey. So I don't feel too bad about that. So basically what's our verdict here, Jeff? Our verdict is uh, the laugh. My, at least my verdict is the <laughs> laugher did nothing wrong. Uh, I think maybe you you would say tone it down a little if you're the laugher, yeah. but I say laugh laugh on crazy laugher. <laughs> and I would say, yeah, maybe the laugher was being they could be too obnoxious. I don't know, but what uh, Danish did, I think, is perfectly fine. Like that's probably what I would endure it. Endure Just it. endure it. <laughs> endure it. Enjoy the movie. And honestly, if you're really with the movie, even something like that, like, shouldn't bother you too much, right? Right. Excellent. And that brings us to our review of Coco. Every year, grandkids, cousins. Pretty much everyone gets together, even great-grandma Coco. And the winner is... Luchadora Coco! I tell her pretty much everything. I used to run like this, but now I run like this, it's just way faster. Life sounds like... Miguel, eat your food. Here, have some more. No, gracias. (gasps) I mean, see? (laughs) That's what I thought you said. And that was from the trailer for Coco. 
the new Pixar film from director Lee Unkrench and uh, co-director Adrian Molina. I'm going to read from the description on IMDb here. Aspiring musician Miguel, confronted with his family's ancestral ban on music, enters the land of the dead to work out the mystery. And joining us today to talk about this movie is Vanessa Arazo, film editor at Remescla. Vanessa, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do there at uh, Remescla and kind of what that is, too? Uh, I don't think enough people talk about that site, but I see it linked all over the place. Yeah, uh, Remescla is a Latino culture site. Um, it's about 10 years old, and it started off really as more of a music site. Mm-hmm. And so people really know it as that, as a oh, kind yeah. of yeah, yeah. discovery of really, really indie music. Um, that you may not find anywhere else. And about four years ago, they decided to do different verticals. So they had kind of the main Romesco page and then they had a music page. So they decided to, you know, create a film section, create a sports section, a food section. So I was the only person that was freelance writing about film for the site. Uh So they asked me to come on to actually start the film section. So I've been there ever since and just from the ground up found, you know, it's not that easy to find writers who have cultural insights about Latino culture, but also know film and can write about it in a descriptive and effective way. So, yeah, so that's what I've been doing there for the last four years is finding writers, you know, coming up with story ideas, editing their pieces writing headlines. It's busy. (laughs) Thank you for doing that, too. I know the film criticism world needs more of that, too. I I was on the hunt for uh, reviews of Coco by actual, you know, Latinos and Latinas and found very few. And you had a really popular tweet, I think, just kind of lamenting that. So that's kind of how we connected there. But hopefully things will get better. And, uh, you know, thanks to sites like Remescla, it's it's getting a little better. Um, Before we talk about this movie... I feel like we should spend an hour talking about that terrible frozen short. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's the the same amount of time that the short actually was. That's how Uh, much it was. And also just to like, you know, break your anticipation for a review. I just want to like really, just really freeze that cold with this frozen thing. But honestly, (laughs) what is, what was up with that? That feels like a really weird marketing thing for a movie that, they don't need to sell. Like, I, do they need to pre-market Frozen 2? I'm not sure what the point of that was. Do you guys have any sense of that? Well, I did not go to a press screening for Coco. I went to my local multiplex. In fact, it's so local <laughs> that it is almost almost exactly across the street from my house, which is pretty rad. I have an AMC theater multiplex across the street from my house. So I walk there when I when I need to go see movies. Uh, and I walked over to the multiplex and I plunked down my my dollars for Coco. And as I walked to the ticket taker who tore my ticket, he said, oh, I just we're just letting everybody know that there is a frozen sing along uh-huh. ahead of the movie that's about uh, 25 minutes long. God. And I went, at least you were oh. warned. That's nice. yeah. I, said, I think oh. they, they were warning people because everyone was so mad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then I said, well, okay, so how long are the trailers before that? I said, is that, is that after the trailers or before the trailers? He said, it's after the trailers. I said, so how much of the trailer, how many trailers are there before that? And he said, there's quite a few. And I said, well, how long until the movie starts? And he said, you have about 45 minutes. Yeah. And I was like, I could have stayed home. 
I could have just strolled in here 45 minutes later. I could have had lunch and just re- relaxed at my house. It, unbelievable that it's 45 minutes until the beginning of the movie I paid for. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. It's a little much, and I hope this is not the beginning of a trend. I mean, we're used to the cute little Pixar shorts before every Pixar movie, right? Yeah. The good thing about that is that they are short and sweet. So most of the time, they're like nice little things that just whet your appetite a little. Uh, if they're truly terrible, uh, like uh, Lava, uh, were you the one oh, who really like liked lava. lava? Oh, yeah. Well, whatever. If you like it or hate it, it's short. It's out of the way. You get to your movie. Uh, this thing, I I was falling asleep halfway through. I was really <laughs> questioning the nature of my existence while sitting through this thing. <laughs> and also because I don't hate Frozen. Uh, the characters are fine, but this particular short, like, it wasn't funny. The music wasn't good. The kids in my crowd were just restless. Like, they just really wanted to see Coco. A lot of little kids were asking, like, is this Coco? When, when are we getting to Coco? Um, nobody really seemed excited about it. Which is yeah. There was yeah. The screening that I went to, as soon as it was over, someone was like, "Oh, thank God!" (laughs) Like it was clearly everyone was impatient. Mm -hmm. What I find funny is not that I mean I didn't expect you know Disney or Pixar to like to pull it. They obviously probably put a ton of money and time into it, and it's you know they were releasing clips before and and promoting it for a long time. But since, you know, Coco opened in Mexico almost a full month before the U S I mean, the day after it opened in Mexico, I was looking for like, okay, I want to see like, what do Mexicans think? And I was trying to find negative comments or negative reviews on Twitter. And I couldn't find anything negative about Coco, but people were going off about the short and they're like, what is this ridiculous? I mean, people, the, the hatred lobbed against the short has been really like overwhelming. Like I I didn't like, I didn't like it either, but people are loving to hate this movie really loving to hate. I'm in the same boat. I, I I didn't hate it as much as Devendra sounds like he did. I, I, it's not great but it and and especially when you compare it to really every pixar short that's been in front of a pixar movies thus far which are delightful it's a disney animation short which is well it also yeah it isn't even really a disney animation short it feels like those when i was growing up there was always those like cheap knockoff christmas specials based on the yeah and and it's that length and that but it's always like the characters you love doing something that they doesn't seem like they should be doing because we're kind of shoehorning them into this Christmas special format. And that's really how it, it, it felt. So it's, it's an odd thing and it's overlong and, and outstays its welcome and feels bizarre, but there were a few funny moments and I didn't think the music was terrible. I thought that that song was, was kind of fun. And, and there was enough, enough that was entertaining about it that i didn't want to kill myself like you said you did my patience was, <laughs> was just fine. really tested because first of all when do you go into a movie and you are forced to sit through an entire episode of a kid's tv yeah. show that you just don't want to see like that sort of thing like this thing belongs in abc it does not belong in front of every screen of coco so i don't know this feels like disney wielding its massive franchise power in a really right. strange way um and also like honestly So uh, I said before, I don't hate Frozen. I do hate the animation style of Frozen. I think it's a really ugly movie, uh, especially compared to something like Luscious, like Coco, and what we've seen from the Pixar films. Um, 
it felt really jarring to go from that simplistic, uh, really, uh, just really like uncreative character designs and you know world design and all that, and then be steeped into the color and vibrancy of something like Coco. So it wasn't the best way to compare the Frozen universe either. But anyway, I don't well, want to spend if, too much time on this. But yeah, go ahead. I was just, mm-hmm. I was just gonna say that uh, you know if you read people's comments on Twitter, it's also you know there's a lot of comparison of this is kind of the first time that that Coco that you know Disney and Pixar are creating a movie that's really has an all Latino cast and yeah. people of color in the forefront. And then you pick like the whitest short <laughs> of all ever, you know, right. Yeah. You're like, literally <laughs> I was sitting there thinking like, wow, the whole, this is kind of like when Latinos make fun of American culture, you know, and you're like, you have no, you have no culture. And then like, that's what the short is about. You know, I mean, I know it's not an Amer- about Americans, right, right, but right. still it's just like, literally they're trying to figure out like we have no traditions we don't you know how do we that's kind of funny yeah well yeah, i did like... think that the message of the short was trying to be you know be open to other people's traditions and you know i i, I think it, its heart was kind of in the right place but it does kind of come off as a spoonful of white people makes yeah. the brown <laughs> people go down you know that kind of thing now let's it's take a little... a little bit of everybody's culture by the way to form our own Right, right? It's like literally about cultural appropriation. <laughs> but anyway, enough about that short. Uh, it was bad. Yeah. I hope to never sit through it again. Jeff, anything else you want to add about that? No, no, it was, uh, yeah, it was not great. It, honestly, if it had been that same exact thing, but like five minutes or eight minutes instead of yes. 22, sure. it would have, I think, I don't think it would have made us as upset. <laughs> it, it would have been fine. I definitely, it was just not great. So let's talk about Coco. And uh, this is a film I've been looking forward to for a long time, uh, mainly because I feel like this is a big step for Pixar. You know, their films and their directors and their creative staff haven't... It's typically been white dudes telling very specific types of stories, um, even when they've tried to branch out and uh, tell a story centered on women, something like Brave. That didn't quite work out, too. Like, creatively, that movie had a lot of issues, um, so I don't know. This felt like a good step towards something more diverse for Pixar, which we kind of need. And I think the success of this movie kind of shows how useful that is. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, did this movie live up to your expectations? Vanessa, any thoughts? Well, it far surpassed them because I wasn't expecting a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was tracking this film and paying attention to it from the second that it was announced from the second that Disney, you know, tried to trademark They originally the film, you know, the film's title was the other Los Muertos. So they tried to trademark that and people were up in arms. And um, (laughs) as soon as that happened, right. I was like, Oh my God, a huge corporation is trying to literally trademark Mexican culture so that they can sell it and make a ton of money. Like this is going to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Right. But then quickly afterwards, they hired one of the biggest critics, um, Lalo Alcaraz, who is like this cartoonist who made a cartoon with Mickey mouse and called it Muerto mouse, which means like death mouse, <laughs> you know, with like these huge claws. And so that was really interesting to me because it really showed that they were completely reversing their their take on it right it was someone who called them out very strongly and they 
they approached him and asked him if he wanted to be involved and be a cultural consultant. Mm -hmm. And so, so that made me think, okay, this could be different, but I, I still, whenever there's anything, you know, about Latinos or even people of color that's created by, you know, I assumed that Pixar was, you know, very white, but now knowing kind of who works there, there are people of color inside of it, you know, maybe they're not leadership positions, but I've learned more and more now, like who's behind it. But I really wasn't expecting a lot. But as the clip started coming out, you know, I was like, oh, wow, this looks beautiful. Oh, wow. This like actually incorporates real elements of Mexican culture. And then they announced the Latino cast. So slowly I was being won over. So, can but I, still, can I ask you a quick not, question? Yeah, yeah. Jump in. Sorry, to, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just don't want to get too far past uh, the title thing because uh, I actually think uh, Dia de los Muertos would have been a much better title than Coco. Yeah, do you, yeah. Do, do you think that that is? I mean, I understand people's fe- it, you know, right, people's feeling uh, of that, but I think calling it Day of the Dead or you know. I, I don't think t- Coco is a particularly good title for this movie. In fact, it's almost a spoiler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I have, I have some, like, I would say mixed feelings about it. Because one, there is a movie that was made in Mexico that's an animation that's about Day of the Dead that's called the other Muertos. Oh, okay. um, that still hasn't come out. They actually just announced that they're delaying their release because it's just Coco's too big of a cultural phenomenon. And they're just like, this is not <laughs> smart of us to release it, you know, and in the next few another movie about uh, kind of a similar subject too, right? I forget the Right, part. right. The the Book of Life. Yeah, Book um, of Life, yeah. And it was, you know, created here in the States, but the director is Mexican and he grew up on the border and his wife was very much involved and she's also Mexican. And there's a lot of similarities of like, um, it's a, a young boy and it takes place in, during the day of the dead. He wants to be a musician and he ends up in, in that movie, they call it the land of the remembered. Um, but yeah, so, so in, as far as the title, I do like that it centers like Mama Coco as the protagonist, but you're right. It's kind of a spoiler because then you're like, oh, this she's very central to the story. Yeah, she's important, and we haven't talked about her for yeah. 90 minutes. Yeah, you know. <laughs> right. At least right. it's a very simple title for kids to, to actually, you know, pronounce you. I think it, I don't know, embeds it more, makes it a little more easy for kids to understand. And yeah, and also I think simple, right? And I think that to name it, the other los muertos or Day of the Dead would really kind of make it seem like Pixar is owning that idea, right. which I think would be a mistake. I do think that that, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have worked. Fair enough. Uh, so anyway, you were saying, I, I totally interrupted you. And I, I apologize for breaking your train of thought. I just wanted to be clear on that, um, that point, but um, you were saying that you were, you know, feeling a lot of uh, more positive anticipation as you saw more about the movie uh, getting closer to its release. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, just as the clips came out and, and I also um, got invited to a press event at Pixar studios in the Bay area. And they showed us the first 30 minutes and I was like shredded already. You know, I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. I want to see the rest of it. Please hit, you know, keep playing it. And uh, it just, I knew, you know, just after those 30 minutes and hearing presentations from the people that, you know, all the different departments that created it, I really knew that this was going to be a really important cultural moment, 
you know, I knew it was going to blow up. I, I just knew it at that point. Um, so yeah, uh, it far exceeded my expectations. Gotcha. And Jeff, what do you, what did you think about the film? Uh, I loved it. I, I really thought it is one of the most beautiful Pixar movies. I mean, they have consistently, uh, improved technologically over time. You can see that from movie to movie and been able to express a, a level of artistry in the animation, uh, that has continued to impress every time. I mean, uh, the water effects in finding Nemo to, or finding Dory, I guess it is, um, it, you know, we're, we're just stunning. And, and it felt like we, it, we were just at this place where visual effects and, and, uh, computer graphics on the, on the scale that Pixar puts them into action is so impressive. And the, art design of this world, uh, this, this, you know, over the, cross the, the line into death world mm -hmm. is just sumptuous and bright and colorful and magical and defies gravity in, in all the most, uh, I think imaginative ways, the kind of things that spark a child's imagination. And there's this bridge of leaves that, it is just spectacular to see and things glow and there's effervescence, you know, spilling out across the world. All of it is great. Even, you know, even before we get to the, the world of the dead, uh, even the, the normal world of, of Mexican culture that is expressed in the movie is beautiful. And I, you know, that I think goes a long way for me, just having uh, just it's just sumptuous for the eyes, you know, but on a very basic level, this movie is beautiful. And I just kind of fell into that world. The performances are lovely. The um, the music is all really great. It it is a, a story that unfolds in a fun way. Uh, there are action sequences that are cool. A few things feel a little convenient, which I I. <laughs> I will probably talk about more in, in spoilers. We can get to that stuff, but overall a, a beautiful experience, a wonderful, a, a heartwarming experience. I got all misty at the end of the movie. Uh, you know, it, it is a, I think a wonderful step for, for Pixar than that. It feels so unique and different. Um, I, I really, really liked it. I, I have a question for Vanessa though. One yeah. of one of my criticisms, I guess, if I had to level criticisms at the film, is that it constantly felt like the filmmakers felt this responsibility to explain the culture that we were watching and the traditions that they were using to, you know, uh, tell this tale. Uh, and I felt like almost almost too much. It was like, okay, so well, th this is real. We really do this guys. Like almost it was turning and telling the audience like, Oh, all these people talking to one another as if to explain to a watching audience what they do rather than the way characters talk to each other. Did you feel any of that? For sure. I think in, in two main points, which I do feel like was necessary um, in the sense of that they explain what happens on day of the dead and the, you know, the grandma sits, stands there and explains like, this is the altar we make and right. we remember our loved ones. And also like Alebrijes, they were, you know, these are spirit animals. So there's definitely some explanatory stuff that could make it feel like, okay, this is for a foreign audience. But I think, you know, for someone that doesn't 
understand this culture, but I think there's even like I'm Mexican American. I grew up in California and before actually going to Pixar studios and them explaining Alebrijes, I had realized that I had seen them before, but I didn't know what they were called and I didn't know where, where they came from. So it's actually part of it is explaining to people like me who you're like, you, you may see something every day, but sometimes you don't even know the significance of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I think to balance that, what I really liked is that there's like, they sprinkle in a lot of Spanish words and don't explain what they mean. There's no subtitles. They just let it exist, which to me is, is a very real experience as someone who, you know, we Latinos in the U S our favorite language is Spanglish, you know, (laughs) like we just throw in words and like, sometimes, you know, because I grew up here, I often speak to my parents in English and they respond back in Spanish and then they'll throw in an English word and I throw in a Spanish word, you know, like we really mix the languages. And I loved that, that they just let that exist. Didn't explain it. Didn't use subtitles. They didn't translate the words. You know how sometimes like in old TV shows, if they tried to use a word in Spanish, like on I love Lucy or something, right? Like they would say it in Spanish and then repeat it in English. And you're like, okay, people don't talk like that. You know, (laughs) it exists in context and you can either figure it out or just let it pass by. Right. Gotcha. Anything else you want to add, Jeff? Uh, no, man. I, I really think it's a, a crowd pleasing movie. It's a heartwarming movie. Uh, I loved, I loved the the performances. I thought they were all really wonderful. And uh, it's music that I honestly uh, don't really listen to. Mm-hmm. That that's that kind of music, and found myself uh, enjoying the the musical performances as well. And and uh, that says something to the entire experience of the film. It it was. It's it's a beautiful, fun, heartwarming story. Yeah, I also really loved this film, and uh, honestly, it, it's after I, I don't think I've been genuinely impressed by a Pixar movie in a while. Like Inside Out was really good, uh, but that was a movie I felt like was honestly a little maybe more geared to adults than it was actual kids. Like something kids would actually enjoy. And That's why I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> and I think this movie succeeds on both levels, even if it gets a little dark, right? Because I remember walking out of uh, Finding Nemo and a little like four-year-old was like, Mommy, what happened to Nemo's mom as we were leaving the theater? Like that sort of thing, you know, that <laughs> these movies have yeah. dealt with loss and you know, Disney movies have dealt with that for a while. And uh, and Nemo's mom is not crushed by a bell on screen. <laughs> there you go. You know? <laughs> yeah, other, other like unsavory, violent things haven't happened yet in those things either. But like, you know, all the way back to Bambi or something, right? The idea of death has existed in Disney movies for a while. Uh, I don't think it's been done in a way that doesn't feel like genuinely terrifying for kids. Like this is more respect for your ancestors and for your family. And it's presenting the idea of like, you know, the spirit of the idea of death is not being something that's terribly horrifying, which uh, I just find kind of interesting. Like making that work in a kid's movie is genuinely impressive. And well, it's it's interesting to note that it, this is PG and not G. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. that makes sense just because they have a lot of skeletons and, yeah, on, on screen violence in pretty massive ways. I wonder if that was, <laughs> <laughs> if that was something like Disney honestly thought about. Um, but yeah, also everything you both have mentioned, like this is a beautiful film. Um, I didn't see in 3D, but this is one of those movies I can't wait to watch uh, with like an HDR enabled projector or at home on my TV because the sheer amount of colors we're seeing is just electric. There's that one shot where uh, Miguel, like as he's approaching the land of the dead and he's walking through the bridge and you just see like the layers and layers of the world. 
which feels like something out of science fiction. Like it, it feels like seeing the Blade Runner world for the first time. Uh, just like a really, it's a really vertical city, and there's a lot of like weird stuff going on. There's just so much to take in. It almost feels like a Miyazaki film at times, and that's just the sort of thing I love. Um, the performances all around too, like Anthony Gonzalez, uh, the young boy who voices Miguel. I think it's just fantastic. Like he's not overblown as the child actor. He sounds really believable and very innocent. And I believe he's the singing voice too for that. Character. Yeah. He's singing and it's incredible. So good. So really good. Yeah. yeah. And Gal Garcia Barnell and Benjamin Bratt, who is, uh, I think Benjamin Bratt is just kind of great and hilarious in this movie. Uh, but yeah, also Gael, like I, I love everything he's in. So great. Like I, I can't think of anything that uh yeah i would really criticize in this movie it kind of just works on every level for me um i'm trying to think like uh and the songs are great too like they're really catchy they really get into your head i kind of want to re-listen to them uh my wife uh who's puerto rican uh, really loved all the music and she loved the little touches too uh this movie is full of little touches i love the point where the grandma finds Miguel doing something he shouldn't. And the first thing she does is she pulls off her sandal to go like hit a guy. It's like, uh, yeah, I, I honestly, yeah, that's authentic. That's authentic. <laughs> I know. My family is West Indian too. So it's a very similar thing from like uh, tropical climates and, uh, just, uh, yeah. What grandmothers will do to protect their grandchildren. Uh, I also like the, the matriarchal structure of this movie too. And the way the family's presented, uh, that feels also very true to life, I think, and a lot of respect for the grandmothers and the great grandmother. Um, yeah, just so much going on. One thing I would mention, though, you know, we were talking about Pixar and uh, you know the diversity of the people behind the scenes. Uh, the actual credited director of this movie is Lee Unkrich, and the co-director is Adrian Molina, and that's kind of interesting. Um, so Pixar, right? When they make movies, they typically pair a more experienced director together with one of their, uh, you know, up and comers. And that's kind of the way it balanced out here. Uh, I just, yeah, it's just one of those things. Like Vanessa, do you find that odd at all? Because, you know, Lee Unkrich, he's a good director. He's been responsible for things like uh, Toy Story 3. He was co-director on Toy Story 2 and Finding Nemo. So he's had a storied career. Um, yeah. What did you learn from your visit to Pixar? Like uh, in terms of the diversity you saw behind the scenes? Um. Well, first, Adrian Molina, you know, learning that he was Mexican-American for me was was assuring, like reassuring that he was a co-director and also to learn that he was a writer, um, you know, a, a, I believe a co-writer of, of the screenplay. And the story that they told was that, you know, their movies take forever to make. And I think yeah. this one took like six years and two years into the process, uh, Adrian had been working on a prior film and he came into the process and they were having a lot of problems with the story. I believe they had a whole different story and scratched it and started over um, and that they were having some problems. And he sent an email to Lee and kind of pinpointed like, oh, this is how you could fix this. This is how you could fix this. And it really came from his own experience with his family. And Lee was kind of handed it over to him and said, okay, you should be writing this. And then he had gave so much input in the writing of it that he was kind of, you know, I don't know if the right word is promoted, but kind of given this role of co-director, I'm not fully, I don't fully understand what role he had in terms of, right. you know, beyond, I understand like the screen writing, 
But as co-director, I tried to, I did interview him and I tried to like poke in of like, oh, were you part of this process? Were you part of it? And he really didn't give much. Like I asked about directing the actors and he said that was all Lee. Mm-hmm. And he talked a lot about having input, but I, I couldn't pinpoint like his exact huh. role that he had as co-director. Like what points of the process was he directly involved in? I'm not totally clear on that. But I do think it's interesting that he was at least given um, given that position and that authority, I think, is, is interesting. Yeah, that's something. And honestly, it's hard to talk about this movie uh, kind of uh, so soon after we've heard about all the allegations against John Laster, right? Right, and yeah. The culture he created at Pixar and something, you know... You know, the idea that you had this guy, and he's he's pretty much a king of animation, right? He's ruled Disney animation for so long. Um, the idea that maybe the culture he created might have pushed out not only women too, but people of color who didn't quite fit into whatever mold he was trying to make, uh, that's kind of disheartening. And hopefully a movie like Coco is the start of something new, I guess. Uh, it is It is strange to see his he's still an executive producer on this movie. And you know, I'm sure he's going to be tied to a lot of movies coming out of Pixar. Uh, I'm really interested in seeing how the studio itself changes after him, you know, after all of these things, basically. Yeah, his connection, I think, to the movie is unfortunate. And I was crossing my fingers that it wasn't going to affect, you know, you're like, this is the only chance we got. Please <laughs> do not boycott this movie, yeah. you know. Um, but I, from, from being there, also, you know, some of the presentations uh, were given by people who work in animation and they have, obviously they have a million departments. There's so many people that work on these movies, but they have like a cloth department, which is the people that work on the, on the clothes and, you know, the lighting and, you know, all these different character designers and, and animators and all that stuff. And I, there were definitely Latinos and Mexican Americans throughout that process that I met. Um, there was one guy, Alonso Martinez, who actually, they were trying to figure out a new character and they mentioned Alebrijes and he was like, Oh, I've been collecting them since I was a kid. Let me bring all the ones I have in my office and like brought his collection to the room. And that started off this whole discussion. So I feel like having people integrated into the process who have been working there for many years, like even Adrian Molina, I think has been there more than 10 years. Um, So I think that those things came out that, you know, just looking to this one guy who was like the one who greenlit it and the head of everything. Yeah. He's trash, but that doesn't mean that the rest of Pixar is. For sure. Yeah. I was honestly a little worried about that too. So close to the release. Uh, is there anything um, you both want to mention about the film before we jump into spoilers? I just appreciate uh, the fact that, that they didn't, they didn't go halfway on making this film about this culture. Yeah. You know, I, th- I, I thought, you know, it it could have been, uh, uh, you know, a small part of the movie, or it could have been whitewashed in some other way. And it's it's impressive that it is, you know, the the music isn't uh, anglicized, the the culture isn't anglicized. It doesn't feel inauthentic. I, I certainly am not an expert, Vanessa. You probably uh, would would be much more uh, capable of commenting on this than than I would, but. As somebody that doesn't know this culture well, it it I was so impressed with how deeply it seems to embrace it. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I what I was just thinking that I wanted to bring up about. There's 
probably a thousand tiny details that for a lot of people may they may you know make it over their head but for those of us that notice it just means so much you know there was um i wrote a re- review for Demescla and some of the things i talked about are even you know the grandma keeps getting him to eat more tamales you know and she puts them on his plate and that of course i feel like that's like an almost every culture, you know, where like, yeah, my Italian grandmother did that too with pasta. Exactly. But the, the tamales that she puts on his plate, you can see like, there's a little strip of corn husk that's tied around it. And you're like, that's how Mexicans make tamales, you know, like they, it's tied together with like a strip of corn husk and just the sweet bread that they put on the, the table towards the end is a very specific bread that's only served for the other muertos. It's called pan de muertos. So bread of the dead, <laughs> um, but it has a very particular shape and, and um, kind of like little pieces of bread that are put on top as a decoration. And that's like very specific that you see on their, their table and just how the grandma talks to him. I, I just couldn't stop laughing when, you know, when she takes out her sandal or in Spanish, you call it a chancla, like hits the guy. But then she instantly switches to like, oh, Miguel. And she calls it like in Spanish. She's like, mi angelito, mi querido, mi cielito. It's this thing where I'm like, that's exactly how my mom talks to me on the phone, you know? And I'm like, not a 10 year old boy, you know, like she, but I'm not a little kid, but it's like, um, Ito is like a, a suffix you add on words in Spanish to make them smaller. So she calls them like my little angel, my love, my like uh, in Spanish, you call someone's mi cielo, which is like a crazy like superlative. Where you're like, you are my sky. <laughs> so it's like, you are the sky in my world. So it's like all these terms of endearments that she uses with him. You're like, yeah, that's exactly how Mexican moms and grandmas are. Like you are the world to them and they will tell you in every time they can, even though she was just mad at like someone and <laughs> yelling at him. You know, she's like, you're the love of my life, my little angel. Like I thought that was really amazing and very particular to like Latin Americans and the Spanish language that they they caught on to that sort of stuff. I thought was really that's the part that like sold it for me. And of course like their dedication to, you know, uh Ernesto de la Cruz, which is Benjamin Bratt's character is totally uh, an homage to uh, the golden age of Mexican cinema. Um, There's just so many things, you know, like the incense, the candles, the marigold petals, like that bridge. Those are all very specific to Day of the Dead and to Mexican culture that you can't, you can't fake that, you know, that took like a deep, deep um, attention to detail and research and just like wanting to do it right. Gotcha. Well, you know, we have a lot more to talk about uh, about this movie, but let's dive into spoilers. Now you're looking for the secret. You're trying to see this coming. No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. So, you know, now that we can talk about spoilers uh, i have to say like where this movie goes i did not expect this is a movie with murder this is a movie with like <laughs> a major yeah it's a pixar movie with a major murder twist i guess it's not too surprising especially after like the lion king like disney has done this before uh but it just feels a little different uh i don't know uh, vanessa what did you how did you feel about like where this movie ended up going 
Well, I feel bad talking about it because it's like such a spoiler, but that's what we're doing here. You know, I'm going to go for it. But the ending for me, yeah, the the twists that it took, you know, I was 100% surprised. I was following the story like, okay, you know, Ernesto de la Cruz is his grandpa or great, great grandpa. And he found him. And then you find out about this murder. You're like, what? Like he <laughs> killed somebody. And I love that was like one of my favorite jokes that I cracked up, you know, when he finds out that Hector or the character played by Gael Garcia Bernal is actually his great, great grandpa. And he's like, oh, you must be disappointed that you're related to me. He's like, I just thought I was related to a murderer like two <laughs> minutes ago. You know, like I found that so hilarious. And it was like, yeah, no, we all agree. We all were like horrified that you were the descendant of a murderer, you know. Um, but that moment, I was genuinely like the pacing of it every second. Like when, you know, he says, uh, my daughter Coco. And then he's like, Coco, you know, like I yeah. was realizing it exactly at the same time that they were. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've read some reviews and talked to some people who say they thought it was predictable, but, you know, I consider myself, you know, pat on the back, like a sophisticated movie viewer. And I usually, you know, watch crappy movies with my mom and predict every second. I'm like, oh, now they're going to do this. And she's like, shut up. Let me watch like Ocean's Eleven or whatever, you know, and I had no idea. I'm no. right there with you, Vanessa. I I th- th- really give this movie credit for um, every moment that I felt like I was ahead of the movie. It immediately acknowledged that. Yeah. Like yeah. that, you know, uh, early on I was like, Oh, it's so obvious that Ernesto is his dad. We're, we're going to spend a whole movie waiting for him to figure out that, duh like, and, and like immediately after that, he like flips the thing is like, Oh yeah, he's my dad. I was like, Oh, kudos movie. You did. You weren't, you weren't playing the long game on this one. As soon as it was obvious to me, it was obvious to your, to, to the movie as well. And, uh, and, and again, at the end when it was like, Oh, that's his dad. And right then he was like, that's my dad. I was like, Oh, so it, it really felt like the revelation was happening right alongside the movie rather than feeling like I was far ahead of it, which I really appreciated. Yeah. It, it feels like just really smart writing too. And there's a lot of setup early on as well, like when you, you know, when Hector early on is talking about like, you know, he he's trying to sneak his way into the real world because his image is never put up. Uh, you know, there are tidbits there that you could start putting together that could make you think he's a part of that family because what did you know? We saw an image ripped out, uh, you know, from the collection of images in Miguel's family uh, of a man, and you could easily start to make those connections. But what I really like about this movie is how it really wraps everything up. Uh, in a smart way, right? There, like, by the time this twist happens, it ends up ha- being a uh, big cathartic moment uh, for Miguel, who finds, you know, the great grandpa he wants, he's been looking for, but also for Hector to have a way to reconcile with his family, and that's the thing he's been fighting for as well. Uh, yeah, I-, I was getting real Miyazaki vibes from a lot of this. It feels like Princess Mononoke or something, and not something you typically find in a Pixar movie. I do want to talk a little bit about the rules of this world because, <laughs> uh, you know, we've we've gone on at length on this show about the <laughs> the what what the rules of of the cars world means. You know, the the ramifications of the cars world and and the the dysmorphic horrors that it implies. Um, and 
I, I, you know, if you follow the logic trail that's presented in Coco about how the Day of the Dead is built, or you know, the rules of that afterlife, <laughs> it seems to me, and you guys can disagree if uh-huh. if, if you do, uh, it seems to me that how you appear in the afterlife in the in the world of the dead is directly related to the picture that is put on the altar <laughs> which is why it's so messed up that they put old ass coco's picture on the altar instead of young vibrant coco uh which she could have been young and vibrant for the entire afterlife but they had to put old coco old crotchety can't leave the her rocking chair coco picture thus cursing her to an everlasting life of being remembered as this old woman who is unable to have any fun in the afterlife. Yeah, I didn't take that as being like them being cursed because of the picture they put up. I thought it was like the point in which they died. Uh, well, but then the, that can't be true, right? Because yeah. all of the young all of his family members and when they walk mm-hmm. through the little scanner, it's like comparing them to the picture that's on oh, the yeah, thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So like and clearly those characters died after you know after the way they look in the afterlife so it seems to me that it's the picture that is solidifying your your <laughs> appearance forevermore and uh and therefore uh I think a warning to everyone pick the best picture of your loved yeah, ones good photos <laughs> Well if you remember though the picture that's there of Mama Imelda has Coco as a little girl in it all right you know so but i i agree she's not that's not her own level of the pedestal that's yeah but i agree i agree it might be more to do with kind of what they look like when they passed away and this is going to be like a huge leap of logic but like considering right mama coco is like however old she is and we're imagining it's in present day so let's say she's like 80 or 90 so she was born in like the thirties or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but so her parents are born like early 1900s, like people in Latin America were not living past like 60 <laughs> at that point, <laughs> you know? So I'm just, this is like a huge, whatever I'm making it up, you know, <laughs> but like, I would imagine those people died much younger and Mama Coco happened to, yeah, but I don't know. Because now, we, if you think about it, there's two pictures of her, right? As yeah, a little girl right. and as an older woman. And yeah, she's definitely like, it's kind of weird that she looks much older than her parents in the afterlife. So yeah, <laughs> I don't know if they thought all that stuff through. I, but I guess it's funny, though, Jeff, that that's what you're thinking about and not the idea that, you know, your skeleton is not based on your physical, like your your actual <laughs> body appearance, right? Like the, the right. way they're built up in the in the afterlife really looks like it's built up directly from their body type and not just like, <laughs> everybody should just look like skinny skeletons. Pretty <laughs> right, yeah. If you have a yeah, if you are uh, obese, you have an obese bone. You're big boned. You're literally big boned. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's some like big aura around your bones, you know, because it's like Mama Coco's like clothes are like much bigger than her skeleton, right? Like they like wrap around her and they have waists, you know, and like hips that go out. And then, you know, like, yeah. I think the women still have breasts. Like it's, yeah, yeah it's very yeah. interesting. It's all very confusing. <laughs> Another thing that's messed up guys. I'm not, I'm not dropping this. This is, there's some serious logic that is, that is the little nuts here. Another thing that's messed up is some dude spent his whole life as a security guard and then died and went to the afterlife and has to also be a security guard in the afterlife? Like, 
you know, the um, Ernesto has has security guards, like undead or not, you know, undead, actually dead. Yeah. Afterlife security guards, which presumably were people. And like you have to do that crappy job in the afterlife, too. Come on. It's the afterlife. You're supposed to get time off, at least. Well, well I mean, least... I, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's even worse that. Like you force Latinos to go through immigration when they're dead. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, you're like, bad. what? Like, like Hector's trying to be like undocumented, you know, <laughs> like he's trying to cross over with like fake papers. Like it's kind of crazy that whole thing, you know, of, of there's like a border checkpoint and it's very clearly labeled, you know, modeled after actual immigration practices. And they're like, do you have anything to declare? And they're like, yes, we have this young boy who's still alive. You know, it's like, kind of troubling that aspect <laughs> yeah that's a little questionable like the world building honestly it's also weird uh they're using like apple II computers as well i i don't know don't know how that's happening like how does the technology from the real world transition to the to the afterlife i don't know well is that supposed to place the entire events of the movie in like <laughs> even even in uh, alive mexico is supposed to be maybe earlier than maybe or is it all our retired technology goes to the land of the dead? So all the Apple IIs we threw away are there now. That's true. Maybe the computers are also dead. Somebody, yeah, somebody has a picture of an Apple II on their on their uh, shrine somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to tie this into the Cars universe somehow, too. Like, it's all connected. It's all connected. It's all connected. Um, any specific moments uh, you want to call out, call out in this movie? I, I'm just thinking... I think that climactic moment where Miguel is singing to uh, to Coco, that is probably, uh, I can't remember a time, like, maybe since the opening of Up, where a Pixar movie was just so perfectly emotionally <laughs> wrenching, right? I, I, I could feel the entire audience pretty much tearing up at that point. Yeah, I certainly did. I mean, I the, the scene right before that, um, where or maybe it's not right before that, but it's a little bit before that where they flash back to Hector being alive and singing the lullaby to a little Coco. I mean, I was devastated. Like I, you know, when you're like shoulders are heaving and you're like, I can't stop myself. Like I saw the movie at a press screening and then later saw it in the theater. Um, Cause I took my mom and my aunt and my sister. Cause I was like, you need to see this movie. But at the press screening, you know, there's only maybe a handful of people there. And like, you know, press screenings are famously, you know, the same as film critics. So it's like mostly like white dudes over the age of 40. Um, so it's like they're not like incredibly emotional. I definitely heard sniffling. But I like I was trying to physically restrain myself from sobbing. Like yeah. I couldn't. I also I mean, not to bring it on a sad note, but like my father recently passed away just a few months ago and just like that like father little girl moment you know where he's and he's literally saying like remember me i was like, i was broken i was like oh, you're gonna I make can't. me cry right now i know no like i i really was like i, I can't deal with this right now <laughs> you know? i was like someone turn it off like i mean I, it, it was obviously beautiful like i it was so beautifully emotional but it really i felt like torn apart like i've never felt that way by a cartoon, you know, quote unquote, like an animated movie has never destroyed me like that before. Yeah. The, the way she looks at him, the, the little innocent eyes staring up at him with such adoration, they really nailed that. And, and I, you know, I have a one-year-old, I play guitar for him all the time. 
And yeah, it's a beautiful thing to think, oh my God, this means something to him. Like on a certain level, somewhere deep down, he's, you know, it it means something to him as much as it means to me. It's, it is an exquisite moment that is beautifully rendered in the movie. And yeah, it hit me too. Yeah, I think it works on a, you know, it's a very emotional thing. And honestly, I think of something like Inside Out, right, where Pixar is pretty much trying to quantify emotion in some ways, right, and try, try, try to really break it down for us. And to me, this is much more effective as, as a way to communicate and tell a story. So, yeah. I, I do I do think, though, uh, I mean, I, I do have a few other complaints. I I will not attempt to pronounce the the name of the magical creatures because I probably will butcher, butcher it. Um, Alebrijes. I'll we'll say it for you. Yeah. yeah. Alebrijes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, you're, um, you're doing good. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I thought they were a little convenient. I understand that it's part of the you know part of the cultural uh, story of 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 the of the land of the dead, but it felt like only our characters have them. You know, and it felt like, uh, she, you know, because she, uh, the the matriarch uh, of our story, is an important person for our story. That she has this like epic level uh, creature at her beck and call, and flying nobody else. Flying yeah, but like larger and more <laughs> powerful than any of the others, and it it just felt it felt all felt very convenient. Like, oh, we're you know we're in a place that only a flying thing could go to. Oh, luckily we have this flying thing to get us out of it. Uh, it I don't know. I, yeah, that's, that's like every fantasy story, though. So, I know. guess it's like the yeah. eagle saving yeah. the hobbits from Lord of the Rings. Ah, sure. Yeah, whatever. giant eagles, whatever. Uh, I did find it funny that the uh, the dog uh, that goes in with Miguel just just dies. Just I guess. Yeah. Uh, poor dog. He <laughs> got magic really powers bad. out of the deal. He did, but yeah, he had to die to get that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there, there is yeah. no like, there's no lamentation there, right? Miguel isn't like, oh man, my dog. Nobody, we never talk about him again until they see him again, you know, at the next, uh, right. the next day of the dead. <laughs> and go ahead. Vanessa. Oh, I'll say about the about the alebrijes, like it's. I agree. Like it's kind of just. Um, needed there for like plot points but um it's not actually typically associated with the other muertos at all it's just a piece of mexican folk art that they thought looked cool and, and incorporated it in there um so i just liked that they were just like so colorful and beautiful and and involved and that they like the the significance of the actual animal right like frida Kahlo always painted and had lots of uh, spider monkey pets mm-hmm. like right. in real life so like her alebrije was like a spider monkey on her shoulder i just loved like those little details and the colors that they provide i think the fact that they look so interesting and very uniquely mexican because they're so brightly colored and um just so added another layer yeah yeah they're they're gorgeous and striking i just felt like from a narrative perspective i don't know it felt a little convenient, but yeah, I mean, kids' movie and yeah, giant uh, magical animals. Yeah, at some point they're gonna have to do something. I think that was uh, the flying cat was also one of those like Miyazaki esque things I was thinking of too. Um, you know, Jeff, you were talking about just the character design, and everything about this film too. Like, I do think it's uh, you know, it feels like a step up for Pixar in some ways, right? I don't. I haven't been a fan of their character designs, especially because I guess I'm I'm spoiled by anime. I'm spoiled by, you know, 
other types of animation where they spend a little more attention to making humans look interesting. And I think that's something this movie gets done. It does well, at least. Too. Especially I agree. Compared to like Frozen, which we, which we got to see right before this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another moment I want to point out, especially because, uh, Vanessa, you kept bringing up um, the matriarch and, and all of her, her very uh, specific uh, uh, behaviors. My favorite movie, in the, my favorite moment in the entire movie, I think, is when she's walking down the street angrily and throws her shoe. Uh, and then, like, moments later, she goes, go get my shoe. <laughs> it's so Yeah, funny. that was hilarious. It's so funny where she's, like, so mad she throws the shoe and then realizes that she wants that shoe back. <laughs> it's so great. And it, for me, it, like, rang so true because, you know, I grew up in the States, so – and my mom moved here when she was really young. She was like 14. So in some respects, she's a little bit Americanized. But she tells me stories all the time of like, she was like, you had to be super aware and like, watch out. Because if I was like, misbehaving or doing something, she's like, a chunk that would come like, shooting across the room. She was like, you had to learn to duck. Because she was like, out of nowhere, it just come flying and hit you. And I was like, that's hilarious. That's exactly what they portrayed in the film, you know. Gotcha. Well, anything else? I feel like uh, we're going to have to wrap up soon. Uh, is there anything else you guys wanted to see from the film or maybe something you'd like to see Pixar do on this level moving forward? This feels like a big stepping stone for them. For me, I love that you know they were able to bring this story to fruition in a way that was so beautiful and authentic and respectful of Latino culture. But I'm also, you know, I'm Mexican American, but also my dad was from El Salvador. So for a lot of Central Americans and and Latinos from other countries, there is sometimes a little bit of resentment of Mexican culture because that's the biggest group of Latinos in the U.S. So that's kind of like what, you know, the joke is like Americans think you know, it doesn't matter where you're from, Americans will think you're Mexican, right? Like if you're Puerto Rican, they're like, whatever, you're just Mexican. So I do think it would be incredible for, you know, it doesn't have to be Pixar, but like a movie on this level and this scale to look at another group of Latinos in in such a deeply personal and like authentic way, I think would be a huge um, kind of expression of of understanding that it's like, you're not all just Mexicans too, you know, (laughs) even though like everybody knows that when Trump says Mexicans, he means Latinos, but you know, in this sense, it's like, yeah, let's, I think it would be amazing to showcase um, other cultures. Cause I like in Central America, they also celebrate day of the dead. They don't always call it that they may call it like the other defuntos, which means the same thing. It means it's another word for dead, but um, they, celebrate it in a few different ways or even just like just to to deep dig a little deeper you know because mexicans are obviously like a well-known culture and it's a holiday that in the u.s has like gained like a lot of steam in terms of just like merchandising like crate and barrel sells like day of the dead stuff you know that's crazy so i would love to see them kind of dig deep into another latin american country Gotcha. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's just so much to do at this point, too. Like, there's just so much for Pixar to dive into. I was happy to see, I think one of the more recent uh, little Pixar shorts was about a young Indian boy and uh, what, uh, dealing with his, I remember it dealt with, like, Hindu gods and kind right. of that relationship. Um, you know, there's there's so many stories to tell, and I hope Pixar, you know, starts to look at some of those, because there's, there's a rich world out there 
definitely far beyond what we've seen so far from from Disney and from Pixar. Yeah, and the look and feel is so different from anything else out there. It, it really rewards that expansion into uncharted territory a little bit, you know, to to be able to have a, a movie that doesn't feel like all their others. It really does feel very, very different and, and in a very good way. Yeah, and I don't have the exact box office stats here, but uh, from what I have seen in headlines and other things, like Coco's doing really well, and I think it's yet another sign, too. Like, we've seen a ton of movies this year that focus on things that we don't typically see, like Get Out and the way it combined, you know, a comedy and a horror movie and the black American experience and, uh, I don't know, Wonder Woman, uh, a really female-focused action movie and superhero movie, like, and they've all done really well. Uh, I, I think this is a good year for a new type of cinema, like one where we're not pigeonholed into the same types of stories as we were before. A hundred percent. And I think that, you know, the U.S. kind of studio executive system tries to propel this idea that now we know is a myth that like stories of people of color in the U.S. don't sell internationally and outside of the U.S. But now Coco is the highest grossing film of all time in Mexico. Uh, It was number one this weekend in the U.S. And I think it made like 70 million. Mm -hmm. And it was the number one movie in China. So you're like, come on, like stories about, you know, beautiful stories about families and universal themes, like just because it features people of a different skin color than you doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it. And I think that this year, like you said, has totally proved that. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad these movies exist, but I'm also very glad they're being successful because it does erase that point where these types of movies can't make money. And that's something yeah, Hollywood has been saying for a while. Um, so yeah, let's wrap up this review. Uh, as always, you can email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa. Where else can people find your work on the internet? And uh, yeah, what else are you working on these days? Um, so my friend and I started a website where we found that Latino films, not on the scale of, you know, Coco don't have as much marketing or, or you know, advertising budget. So we put together a website where we try to list all of the Latino films playing at film festivals and small theaters um, across the country. And that's called Cinelandia. So it's um, C-I-N-E land, I-A-U-S-A.com. And that's where you can find out other Latino films that are playing. Um, And also I'm on Twitter and it's info Cinelandia, the same as um, similar to the website. And on Ramescla, please read Ramescla. Gotcha. <laughs> I pour my heart and soul into that every day. <laughs> Are there any smaller Latino-focused films that you want to highlight, uh, you know, now that we're here? Um, I'm trying to think of what's coming out soon. I believe A Fantastic Woman is going to be in theaters because they need to do a Oscar qualifying run. And it's this really beautiful film from Chile. And it stars, a tra- it's about a trans a woman and it actually stars a trans woman playing a trans woman. Imagine that. Um, and a lot of people are giving it Oscar buzz. Chile's Chile submitted it as its um, entry for the best foreign language film Oscar. So I definitely would tell people to check that one out. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Jeff, where can we find you on the internet? 
Well, you can always follow me on Twitter at Jeff Canada, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And I have several other shows for you to check out, including a video game show every single day called Newest, Latest, Best. You can find that anywhere you get podcasts or by visiting anchor.fm slash NLB. I have a weekly video game show, long-form video game show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And I do a comedy science show called We Have Concerns that you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra. And I write about tech at Engadget.com. Um, you know, check out all my recent product reviews there. I also write up a guide on buying a new TV if you're doing that. Uh, the prices have gone really low, so now is a good time to look into that. All right. Thanks for joining us, folks. We're out.